Mark 1 verse 14 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And Father, we humbly ask as we take this time to continue in our worship now by availing our hearts and minds to the truth and the authority of your spirit-inspired word, that, Lord, you would prepare us, take away distractions from within us and among us, and just give us a heart to receive and an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church as we study through this particular section of your word today. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, the word to authenticate means to show something to be true or to prove it to be genuine. So it's basically a process whereby something is done to remove all doubt and to assure something is indeed real. And in this next section in Mark's gospel together, Mark, to me, kind of is functioning here like a photographer taking quick snapshots, if you would, of the various different events during Jesus's earthly ministry among people. And these multiple snapshots of Jesus' ministry, we see the divine power and the great authority of Jesus being experienced among people, clearly authenticating that Jesus was God, that he was God living among humanity as a man serving people humbly. And we see Jesus' authority demonstrated here repeatedly in this section. Now, when we talk about the authority of Jesus, we're talking about the reality that he has supreme power, that he has ultimate control and the absolute right to give orders to bring to pass whatever he wills. And no one can stop that, nothing can hinder that, because his supreme power and ultimate control gives him the right to bring to pass whatever he wants. 
And in this section here, we'll see Jesus has authority to change lives. Jesus' authority is seen when he speaks to people and the powerful effect it had when they heard the voice of the Lord. We see Jesus' authority over the demonic forces and all spirits, and we even see Jesus' authority over human illness and disease as well. And I think knowing the authority of our Lord is meant to both stir us with greater faith to believe him and to trust him, to exercise his authority and power when needed, as well as, no doubt, to cause us to just yield to the Lord in a greater way, knowing that it's never going to be successful exercising our will against the will of a supreme ruler, that it is much wiser for us to just yield to the authority of the Lord. Now, the backdrop as we come into verse 14 this morning, remember the prior section, we saw some preparatory events that led up to the official start or launch of Jesus's public ministry. We saw that Jesus participated in that water baptism of John there at the Jordan. And remember, God the Father, it says, opened up the heavens, and it tells us the Holy Spirit came down powerfully upon Jesus, if you would bringing about the baptism of the Spirit upon the life of Jesus to anoint him and empower him for his ministry work. And the Father validated Jesus' deity from heaven, speaking forth, remember saying with that declaration, you are my beloved Son, and in you I'm well pleased. And then we were told in verse 12 and 13 that after that event happened, immediately the Spirit then drove Jesus into the wilderness, and it says that he was there in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, Luke chapter 4 tells us that when the devil had ended all his tempting and testing of Jesus, that Jesus, it says, then returned in the power of the Spirit. So now, having been fully prepared, if you would, for his earthly ministry, he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit, and his ministry begins to take, uh, if you would, the starting course, it begins to start at this point, at least Mark's record of it. Verse 14, look at it. He says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, repent, he said, or excuse me, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now, notice, if you would, the beginning of verse 14, verse 14a, if you would, there, where it tells us that it was after John was put in prison, that marks a period of time historically, that Jesus came to the area of Galilee. So Mark indicates a certain time period where Jesus now went to the area of Galilee, which means that he traveled from where he was in the south up through Samaria, which is sort of the middle territory of Israel, and now up into the northern region of Israel, which is the area of Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is, to the region of that area, to now start what we often refer to as the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And this is what Mark focuses on in his writing going forward, the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Remember, Jesus came from that area in the north. He traveled down south into the area of Judea, where the Jordan River was, and he came to the region of the south at first to be baptized by John, as we saw, as well as to be tested out in the wilderness. And it seems that Jesus also did then initially minister in the southern area of Judea 
for a period of time, likely we believe for about a few months at least, and it was not until, as verse 14 says here, John was then put in prison, that Jesus then journeyed back to the new earth to begin his Galilean ministry. Now, in Mark's account, we don't get anything of the first season, that early season of Jesus ministering in the area of Judea that is recorded in the first few chapters of John's gospel. So if you'd like to see that, in John's gospel, in the first few chapters, Jesus is being sort of described and recorded there of what he did directly after his time in the wilderness in that early Judean ministry in the south. His interaction with his disciples are recorded there. The wedding of Cana, where Jesus does his first miracle, is recorded there. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where he speaks to Nicodemus about being born again. Jesus' ministry with the woman at the well there, the woman in Samaria, is recorded there. But at this point, Mark kind of jumps over that and, and kind of doesn't give to us that account, but gives to us the Galilean ministry that began, it says, after John the Baptist was put into prison, and Jesus now goes north and begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So as, as Jesus begins his Galilean ministry, Mark, notice, draws our attention first and foremost, this is sort of his first picture, his first snapshot that he gives to us, on the primary focus of the work of Jesus among humanity, and that was proclaiming with all of the authority of heaven as the Son of God, the need of humanity to respond to God's plan, to be prepared for what Jesus himself calls the kingdom of God. And this is the first thing Mark draws attention to, the preaching. That word preaching literally doesn't get the idea in our mind. We think of someone standing behind a wooden box or a podium like what I'm doing here this morning. The word preaching in the Bible is a term that just means to announce or to proclaim publicly a message. And it was the good news of the kingdom of God, indicating to mankind the spiritual and eternal kingdom that does exist and that is so much more important than this present temporal earthly realm. And this is what Jesus wanted to draw people's attention to. Mark says that when he came, he began announcing and proclaiming the gospel, which is a word that means good news, of this kingdom of God that existed. That is this kingdom where God rules supremely, where everything is honoring God, nothing and no one is rebelling against God, there's a kingdom of peace and joy and all things are righteous and pure and holy and good. And nothing wrong happens. There is no evil present. There is no pain or hurt or death. Aren't you glad if you're going there? <laughs> that one day we're going to get to experience that realm of the kingdom of God as Jesus brings his kingdom to earth and sets it up for a thousand years and then for eternity future going forward, we then remain with the Lord and continue to experience this wonderful kingdom realm where, again, we get to enjoy that glory with the Lord. And the good news, that's why it's called a gospel, the good news of that is though we are all, each one of us, guilty sinners and we deserve the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of damnation, if that would be what we got, what we deserved, because we've all rebelled against the king, have we not? And our rebellion against the king of the kingdom means we deserve to be banished from it, but God desires in his love for everyone to be able to enter into that kingdom instead, to enter into his kingdom 
And this is why it's such good news. Yet notice Jesus declared in this preaching of this good news of the kingdom, what is required in response of us as people in order to be able to have access to enter into that kingdom. It's told to us in Jesus' preaching. Look at his message in verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled. Now's the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's accessible. Repent and believe in the gospel. So notice Jesus preaching of this good news of God's salvation to the lost souls of humanity, what it included. Three things particularly become very evident in Jesus' preaching. First of all, Jesus' preaching was trying to convey the idea that time is of the essence, that the opportunity to respond is now, not next month, not next week, not after I have a little fun. No, Jesus said now, right now. Time is of the essence, he said. The time has been fulfilled. Things are now at the right time, and the kingdom of God is available. It's at hand. And the first thing he calls them to do as well, after telling them time is of the essence, is he calls them, notice, to repentance. He says there, repent, which is a term that means to turn away from the direction you've been going, if you've been going north, to acknowledge north is the wrong direction. I've had the wrong idea in my mind about going north. I've been living the wrong way, going north. I need to make a decision to change my mind and to go south. The idea is to go the exact opposite way. Remember in our study last week, during Easter Sunday, we saw there where Paul talked to the uh, Thessalonian believers, and he talked about how they had turned to God from idols. The idea there, that was a picture of their salvation. They turned from sin, from idolatry, from living a wrong way and believing a wrong thing, and they turned to God. There was a definite change. There was a conscious choice. They didn't gradually become Christians by attending church week after week or, or because their parents drugged them there. Eventually, they became a Christian too. That's not how it happened. There came a crisis moment in the life of those believers, as comes in all of our lives, where we must choose, recognizing I am wrong. I'm a wrong person. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm guilty before a holy God, and I need to choose to think differently. I need to choose to recognize I need Jesus for myself. I need the forgiveness of Jesus. You know, this was something when I was you know, my wife and I were parenting our kids was really important to me. I had a friend in uh, Pennsylvania who was a pastoral friend of mine, and he often said, every time my kids started misbehaving until they moved out of the house, I just started preaching the gospel to them. And he said, because I just never wanted to take for granted that they were saved. So he said, if they behave badly, I just started preaching the simple gospel to them again, just in case you're not saved. Because we know we can expose our kids to Christianity, and we can expose our kids to Christ, but we can't make them repent and have an experience with Christ. We can't make that happen, but that has to happen, right? That was essential for us. And so Jesus here, his first message is you must realize you are wrong. You must realize you need to cry out to turn away from what's wrong and you're believing what's wrong and to turn instead and believe in, notice to, the believe in means to rely upon, to receive for yourself the gospel, the good message of salvation through Jesus being the Savior and what he offers. And look, the reason why Jesus, and there's his preaching, spoke that message with such great authority to lost souls is because Jesus, who is the Son of God from heaven, knew who he was. He understood the realities of 
eternal life in heaven and eternal damnation and torment in hell, a place that was made for the devil and his angels and that Jesus did not want anyone to go there. And he knew what he was offering and making available through his life, death, and resurrection. And because he knew it was so true and he knew what happened when people properly responded to that, he spoke with such authority because he knew if a person responds to that, by repenting from what's wrong and choosing to believe upon and receive and respond what's right, Jesus knew their eternal destiny would be changed. And this powerful transformation would happen because he knew that only he had the authority to forgive sin, to make a person righteous and ready for heaven, to give a person the gift of eternal life. And look, folks, we today now, as the Lord's people, we can speak that same gospel message to people graciously but boldly with a sense of spiritual authority because that message alone, if people respond to it, has the power to change people's eternal destinies. Remember Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes. A lot of times people leave that part off. To anyone who believes. The idea is, is when a person hears the gospel message and the Holy Spirit's convicting them and prompting them to respond and Jesus is knocking on the door of the heart, when they choose to believe upon that for themselves, receive it for themselves, when faith is mingled with that gospel message of salvation, it becomes the power of God to bring salvation then. And so Jesus here proclaimed this and he encouraged people to respond to it now, not to wait. And his authority was seen in that preaching. Verse 16 goes on to tell us, And then as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, Simon, of course, being Peter, who we know, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, verse 17, Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And they immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, because he was blown away by these responses, immediately they left their nets. Didn't you want to pray about that? No, immediately they left their nets. The authority of Jesus to their soul. They left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, verse 19, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, no doubt with the same calling. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants. And they went after him. So we see Jesus' authority displayed, calling and recruiting his followers, if you would, into deeper degrees of commitment as well as Christian service. In verses 16 to 20 here, we find Jesus calling four fishermen to leave their prior way of life in order to become his daily followers and ministry partners serving the Lord now we might say on a much more dedicated level with much deeper commitment than prior to this time. Again, we know from John's gospel account, these men, Simon, Andrew, James, John, they already knew Jesus. This wasn't their altar call. They already knew Jesus. John's gospel tells us that. They already believed in Jesus. They were already to a degree followers of Jesus, disciples. But it seems they kind of came and went from their everyday affairs, they would do some things, but that they also worked daily still as fishermen, 
which was a common occupation at that time. We're told here that the region that they were in, in our verses, it tells us, verse 16, that Jesus was now up in the north walking around by the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater lake in Israel. It's about 13 miles long, about seven miles wide, and it's a great location for fishing. And as you can see how these men were fishermen, and that day they did what was called dragnet fishing, where they would cast a large net out into the water, and then they would haul the net back in to see if there was fish in it. And part of that work also included, as we see in James and John, down in verse 19, also included at times mending their nets as well, because the nets would get damaged, they would get tangled, so you had to repair and fix them as needed. And these men, in response to Jesus' authority, calling them now, not for the first time, but calling him into much deeper commitment, asking something more of them, they now become part of that team that we know of 12 selected, hand-picked disciples of Jesus who become his ministry partners and learners, invited to follow him more closely, to travel around with him during the entire time of his public ministry, experiencing everyday life in what Jesus was doing for those years. And they become part of this team, hearing all the sermons that he was preaching learning ministry from his first hand, watching his miracles and the works that he did, and directly even getting, right, remember later we'll see, to participate in the actual ministry of Jesus. He gives them authority and sends them out and lets them start to serve. And in choosing to follow Jesus in this way now, we see very clearly it required them leaving behind certain things of this life that others were experiencing in everyday life, yet they would get to experience greater things with Jesus because as he invites them to, they would now get to be used like spiritual fishermen to draw people into the kingdom of God and to help mend damaged lives instead of mending and fixing nets. They would now get the privilege to mend broken people. And the amazing thing is that when Jesus put forth this call, his voice carried such authority I mean, Mark emphasizes it for us. Notice they responded radically with total commitment. I mean, they heard the voice of Jesus, and it tells us both there in verse 18, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And then again, verse 20, when the next calling goes out, immediately after he called them, they leave behind the hired servants, their father, they depart from the boat, and they go after Jesus, they leave behind what's safe and certain emotional connections, and they decide wholeheartedly, hey, if he's calling us to something more, we want everything he's got. If he wants us on a deeper level, his authoritative voice, we might say, brought radical life change to this group of followers. They were believers, they were followers, but the call of Jesus now brings a radical life change on a much more deep and dedicated level prior to this time. And let me say by way of application and connection to that, at some point in all of our relationship with Jesus, if you are a believer in Christ, you've been saved, you're walking with the Lord, at some point in our relationship with Jesus, after we believe in him, after we start to follow him, he will at some point call and invite us to go further, to go deeper, to take things in our life to a more dedicated level, as our Lord and the ruler of our life. Because see, he knows what the word Lord means. It means ruler. <laughs> it means someone else is in control. And as our Lord and ruler, 
he realizes not only is he deserving of more from us, but he also knows what he's doing with our lives as we follow him and into whatever he chooses for us and asks for us. And at times, he will indeed call us deeper. He will ask more of us. He'll ask us to go further. He'll expect more of us. He'll call us to go into deeper things spiritually, greater measures of sacrifice and commitment as we further serve him as the Lord over our life. And he puts that invitation in different ways and callings upon all of our lives. Notice with me, if you would, a few things about this call of the Lord into deeper commitment that we see in our verses here. The first thing I would draw your attention to is this, is that whatever Jesus asks of us, even if he asks something more of us, something greater of us, but whatever Jesus asks of us, if we exercise our faith and we obediently follow him, listen, he by his power will make us become what he intends for us to be. Let me say that again. He by his power will make us become whatever he intends for us to be or for that which he's calling us to do. You see with me there in verse 17, the, the, the words of Jesus, look what he says to them, to these fishermen, follow me, that's all he asks of them, just follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. I like that. Jesus says, here's all I'm asking, lay down your will. Here's all I'm asking, give up the right to your life. Here's all I'm asking. Embrace my call. The Bible says many are called, few are chosen. And the reason why is many are called and lots refuse. Jesus chooses those who willingly come, who embrace the call. And here Jesus says, I want to make you a fisher of men. I want this for you. I want to take you further. I want to use you in a greater way. And he says, follow me. And he says, and that's all you got to do. I'll make you become. You can hear these men. We're not educated rabbis. We're fishermen. I mean, we've never gone to the rabbinic schools. We're still trying to figure out what's that fifth book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus. And Jesus said, just follow me. That's all I'm asking. You follow me. I'll make you become by my power, changing you, empowering you, enabling you to become what I want you to become and to do the thing that I want to do through your life. What a wonderful assurance for all of us, because the same is true for our lives. Whatever his request of us, our job simply, folks, is, I say simply, but it's yet quite complicated and hard because we're, we're, we're attached to our own lives so much. That's why Jesus said, you know, if we don't lose our life, we'll never really find the life that he intends for us. But how wonderful to know that our job is simply to believe and to respond to what Jesus is asking and follow him and he does the rest, right? So whatever he's calling us into, maybe he's calling us into marriage. We're terrified, oh my goodness, to become a husband, to become a father, to become a wife, or, or maybe he's calling us to serve him some way, or maybe he's calling us, well, you can fill in the blank. He calls us to all types of things. But when the Lord says, follow me in this, all you got to do and I got to do is submit our will and follow him and he'll make you become everything you need to become. He, by his power, does that work. He provides the power and everything that's needed for us to simply walk out and facilitate what he asks for us to do. What a wonderful thing. Secondly, notice also, as Jesus recruits people into service, notice what does he find? He finds a group of men who are already busily occupied and working. I find that interesting. 
Jesus says, goes out to the Sea of Galilee and he finds Simon and Andrew and James and John. And what are they doing? It tells us that as he goes out, he sees them there casting, verse 16, the net into the sea because they were fishermen. In other words, they were occupied. And then in verse 19, he goes and finds James and John and they're there working, mending the nets. Again, fishermen were hard workers. That was manual labor in that day, early days, tiring physical labor, going out. They didn't have motorboats. Guess how you got out there? Rode yourself out there. You're throwing the nets into the water. Fishermen had to be responsible and keep at it. They had to be faithful men who kept working despite the outcomes. I'm not much into fishing, but I know this much about fishing. Sometimes you catch fish. Other times, you what? You don't. Or you lie. Right, John Russell does. That's all over YouTube now. I heard it. I know his voice well. So what do you got to do? You got to stay at it and stay at it. You got to keep going despite the outcomes, despite the disappointment, despite the frustrations. You got to be someone who can faithfully remain committed and keep at it and keep grinding and going and going and going And Jesus says, yeah, those are the kind of men. They're busily occupied. I can see they already got a good work ethic. They're faithful. They're diligent. They're responsible. They can keep at it. They don't give up. They don't cave in quick. They don't get easily distracted. They can stay on course. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm just going to take all that, and I'm going to use it now for my kingdom instead. And he recruits these men. He says, I'm just going to put these men into my work. And I'm going to make them fishers of men instead. And look, I think it's a beautiful thing. Jesus is looking, folks, for workers, for people who know how to be faithful and committed and disciplined and responsible. Because as ministry work, I can tell you this with a fair degree of validity now, it's a lot like fishing among the sea of humanity. That's what it's a lot like. And so Jesus, understanding that he recruits people, not who are sitting around or unoccupied, looking for something to do, he recruits those who are already occupied those who are working, and he transitions them to do greater things for him. And thirdly, notice also, as Jesus puts forth this authoritative call to deeper things, that it required, as I mentioned briefly earlier, that they had to leave behind certain things. It was a part of the call to follow the Lord in what he was calling them to do, to go to a deeper level when Jesus calls Sometimes part of that process, oftentimes, I should better say, means leaving certain things behind. We have to be willing to let go of certain things. It says in verse 18 there, regarding these men's response, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately it says they left their father Zebedee, all the hired servants, the other employees, and they went after Jesus. What does this represent? It represents them leaving behind things like, if I could, financial security. It meant leaving behind job security. It meant leaving behind financial opportunity. This was a lucrative business if you did well in that day. It meant leaving behind, if you would, their lucrative business. It seems for the two men, James and John, they they left behind not only that, but they left behind emotional attachment. Their father's approval. You want to go do what around Israel? Oy vey. What? I built this business for you. That might not sound like Italian, I guess, but I'm Italian. I guess it just comes out now. 
And you want to go run around and tell people about Jesus? I mean, again, you want to you leave? This is stable, son. Why would you want to go do that? And again, there was this challenge, leaving behind their father, relationships, emotional attachment, connection, you know, these kind of things. The, the request of, of Jesus required them giving up familiarity and comfort and all the things that they were used to and their identity was tied up in and that everybody else approved and endorsed in society. But look, these represent just some of the things that Jesus, when he calls us, at times we may need to leave behind as well. Because at times this will be part of the process in following Jesus and embracing his call to something a decision will often have to be made. Are we willing to leave behind this? Are we willing to leave behind that? Are we willing to give up this? Are we willing to let go of that? Are we willing to abandon comfort or assurance or an American dream or the approval of people or, or, or even just our own lives? But I tell you, that is a part of the call of the Lord. I think of the gentleman who served on staff with me as my assistant when we were pastor in Calvary Chapel of York. And I remember when I spoke to him and, and we talked about coming on staff, he was a mechanical engineer. He was cranking some money, man. And he was doing well, and he was a gifted, talented guy. And, and, I, and I remember that, that process, and, and it was so beautiful to see that heart attitude. And now for over two decades and two pastors since I've left, he still remains there on staff, and what a minister of the Lord. But he had to give something up, <laughs> He had to choose to say, you know, I, I know what I can make as a mechanical engineer, but I also realize what the Lord's calling me to, and, 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 and he did it. And I think, what a beautiful example. And sometimes this is a part of the process. And I tell you, this is sometimes something where you're going to find, I tell you as a Christian, your soul may be confronted with this, and you're going to have to decide at times. Are you willing to abandon this or let go of that or give up comfort or assurances and follow where the Lord's leading and embrace his call? And there's a choice in that. They could have stood in the boat and said, you know what, Jesus, we are so blessed that you would think of us. But there's some other fishermen over there. What, what? They chose. It was a decision. They could have stood in the boat. He didn't compel them. But the power of his voice was so strong, the authoritative call of the Lord so gripped their heart that I love this scene here because when Jesus' authority is operating on the throne of a heart, encouraging and empowering a soul, I love to see when people just choose to follow Jesus more fully. There's something so beautiful about this. If I would, may we pray, folks, that we would see that kind of thing right there more and more and more today among Christians. Beautiful, beautiful. And it's not always a call to full-time ministry. The Lord's call comes in so many ways in all of our lives. Verse 21 then goes on to tell us that then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribe. So the next snapshot Mark gives us of Jesus' authority here is when Jesus' authority was seen when he was teaching the word of God. It tells us, verse 21, that he went into the city of Capernaum, and that becomes kind of the headquarters of Jesus' ministry and it says, as he goes into the city of Capernaum, verse 21, that he immediately went into the Sabbath and he entered into a synagogue and he began to teach. Now, the Sabbath, remember, was that seventh day of the week 
for the Jewish people, that customary prescribed day in Judaism under Mosaic law, where they were to cease from their ordinary work and spend time focusing on honoring God in worship, in spiritual development, in just being refreshed spiritually and gathering together as God's people. The synagogue, which is where we see them assembled, was sort of the community gathering place where their meetings of worship were held. And we see now them here in the synagogue, and typically the synagogue assembly times included not only fellowship for God's people, a time to break from work and get together communally, but the meetings we know historically of synagogue gatherings typically consisted of a few things, prayer, scripture reading, and then an instructional message from a text that was read. And here we now see Jesus in this synagogue. He goes in, and it tells us there in verse 20 that he was there entering into the, or verse 21, excuse me, in the synagogue, and Jesus now begins to teach, no doubt teaching the word of God. Now, here's just an interesting little tidbit for you. Luke chapter 4 tells us, and I love this statement, it says, as Jesus' custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. I love that Luke records that for us, that Jesus, as God, representing the perfect man living out on this earth, Jesus had a spiritual custom, a spiritual habit. It says, as his custom was, he went to the synagogue. I love that picture of our Lord. He had a lifestyle discipline as a man, the perfect man, that he said it is important and it is proper that when God's people gather, it will be my custom to gather with them. And it says it was his custom, not his periodic thing that he would do, not if he couldn't catch it online. It was his custom. He went to the house of the Lord. He gathered with the people of God. He participated in the gathering of the Lord's people, and he faithfully attended to be there. What a beautiful picture. If Jesus needed to go to worship, certainly I do. <laughs> and it's a beautiful scene of our Lord. And here's Jesus now. He takes up the word of God, it tells us that day, as it's read, no doubt someone would read a passage of scripture, and Jesus now stands up to give the instructional message from the word of God. And look at the experience of those who heard the Lord's, Lord's voice that day when he was teaching. It tells us, verse 22, that when Jesus was speaking through the word of God, it says the people were astonished. That is, they were deeply moved internally. They were amazed. You might say their minds were blown as insights were coming to light as they listened to the voice of the Lord through the word of God being instructed. And it was very different, it says there, from the religious leaders and teachers of that day because it says that Jesus taught them as one, verse 22, with authority, not like the scribes. Again, we know customarily in that day, mainly the scribes, they would read the writings of prior Jewish rabbis and scribes, and they would just read the writings of other men that were comments on the word of God. But today, as Jesus was speaking in the synagogue, they noticed something different. And what they noticed was that guy just reads religious you know, uh, lessons. And, and, but when this man's speaking, the power of God is coming forth and it's penetrating our hearts. It was the same thing, just done by one person reading just religious, ritualistic, if you would, lessons but when Jesus spoke, there was an evident supernatural power. 
There was a dynamic of God's power and authority from heaven that they sensed. And let me just say, by way of an encouragement to us, since Jesus is alive today, that is what we celebrated last Sunday, right? (laughs) He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our study in Revelation tells us Jesus walks among his church. I believe he still wants to minister. I believe he still wants to teach us to this day still. And I don't know about you, but I pray, and I think that when Jesus is the one speaking through our teachings, I believe the same experience can be happened. I believe the authority of the power of heaven and God can come powerfully penetrating our hearts and touching our souls if the Lord's the one speaking when the word of God is being taught. And if the Lord is the one communicating, we as well find ourselves being struck, if you would, cut to the heart, realizing, man, this is different than something I've heard in some other religious settings before. Like, I'm experiencing heaven's authority, and I'm hearing the voice of the Lord. And what a wonderful thing that we should pray and desire. He's with us, and I believe he wants to be the one to still teach us. Verse 23, it says, now there was a man in that synagogue, watch this unfold now, with an unclean spirit, a demon, and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this man in the synagogue day with this demonic, unclean spirit To me, I think it's interesting to take note of there in verse 23 that in the house of worship, sitting right among God's people, in that gathering was a man who was very troubled spiritually. And that's an understatement. He's a demon-possessed man. Yet despite the efforts of the devil maybe to put a plant there to operate interference among God's people, what better place for someone who has a troubled life or is under the control of the devil or demons in bondage to be than in the house of God, where the authority of the Lord and the power of God and his word is operating with authority to help people and to deliver people. No doubt, look at the response of this man so strongly, as I said, to Jesus' voice, to Jesus' teaching. It says that demon-possessed man there, it says he cried out as Jesus was teaching. I hate that when a demon interrupts a Bible study, but that's what happened. Jesus is teaching, and he cries out. He interrupts the Bible study as Jesus is instructing. And notice, however, he says, what have we to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? That's freaky in the plural. This man speaking in the plural as the demons communicated. Notice demons recognize the identity and the authority of Jesus, because right away they say, are you here to destroy us? We know who you are. You're you're the Holy One of God. You're God. They knew exactly who Jesus was, and in fear, they reverenced him. Verse 25 says that Jesus then rebuked the demon, saying, be quiet. Literally, it's be muzzled, cease speaking, and exit out of him or come out of him. So Jesus exercises his supreme control now in this situation, and here we see Jesus' authority over the demonic realm, over any spirit, being, That spirit being must submit to the authority of Jesus. Jesus demands that that spirit cease, and he mercifully demands that that spirit be removed and this man be delivered from this horrible condition that he was enslaved in. And how wonderful to see the authority of the Lord calling for this. And verse 26 says, And when the unclean spirit convulsed him 
and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. So instantaneously, this demon had to comply with the authority of Jesus. Instantaneously, he had to submit to the authority of Jesus, and it says with a loud shriek, that must have been weird, this man physically convulsed, and then he was liberated from this demonic spirit. Talk about an exciting worship meeting at church that day, right? And again, can I just say in connection to that, what an exciting worship meeting. No smoke, no light shows, no techno screen, no video presentation. But what was happening? The power of Jesus Christ was changing human souls. The word of God was being taught. The presence of Jesus was being honored. God's people were assembled together. Again, I can't help but to wonder, folks, what is Jesus really more interested in in our worship gatherings today? Is it, is it high-level, you know, well-orchestrated, planned out in a planning meeting, an entertaining experience to stir the emotions of people? like a spiritual pep rally, so they can leave and say, man, I was moved today. You know, Pastor Chuck always used to say, I don't care how high you jump. What I care about is how straight do you walk when you hit the ground. Jesus is present. He was teaching the word of God. He's being honored, and the Lord powerfully is speaking and ministering. And I can't help but to wonder, isn't that an exciting worship meeting? where people walk away and they live differently Monday and Tuesday and they survive to Thursday <laughs> in a messed up world because the Lord is working in our lives and we didn't just get a cotton candy sugar rush, but we got our soul nourished so that we can survive from week to week and honor the Lord in a difficult world. I love verse 27 as the culmination of this. It says, they were all amazed and they questioned, look what they said, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the demons, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. People were astonished as they attended because, see, they had attended religious gatherings for years. They went to religious gatherings. But what they recognized that day is something different's happening here. The power of heaven is present here. The Lord just did something incredible, and this is authentic. And they were so astonished at the superior authority of Jesus over demonic forces. They said, even the demons obey him. And I think this is a beautiful thing because let us never forget, our Lord has authority over all forces, spiritual, physical, any force. Jesus has authority. Are demons indeed powerful? Is the devil indeed powerful? Yes. But they are nothing compared to the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the same authority that Jesus has to operate in our lives, to rule over our lives, to shield our lives, to protect our lives, to deliver our lives. That's why the Bible says, he who's in us is greater than he who's in this world. And how wonderful to know that Jesus has that authority. And how wonderful as well, if I could, to say, as we see this man delivered that day, to recognize here's a demonically possessed man delivered instantaneously by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt, it's a good reminder and a realization that no life, despite its condition, is beyond the power of Jesus. 
to bring deliverance. And some of us need to be reminded of that once in a while because sometimes we can think by observation a person is just too far gone from change. And we think they are just so entrenched now in darkness and sin and some habitually destructive lifestyle. And sometimes we, we start to, to, to struggle with believing someone can change. And I love how Paul, when he's giving testimony of his own life, how the Lord changed him from being a hateful, proud, stubborn, arrogant, cruel man headed in a wrong direction, ravaging lives and destroying his own, and how the Lord changed him to make him a humble, gracious, kind, loving, servant-hearted individual. And in the midst of that, Paul spoke of Jesus saying that Jesus opens people's eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Paul said, he did it to me. And we need to remember he can do it to anybody. We see the Lord's authority here. This man was demon-possessed, and Jesus radically changed him. And look at the result of it, verse 28. Immediately, his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. How wonderful would that not be if our Lord kept working powerfully to see his fame spread around all the region, just to see his glory and people talking about the Lord? Verse 29 says, Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they were like you and I. The church was over. Time to go eat somewhere. They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So after the worship meeting, they retreat now. No doubt we believe Peter had a home in the area of Capernaum. And this, of course, is a reference to Simon Peter, who we know as the Apostle Peter. And please notice, if you would, what the Bible says. It tells us, verse 30, that Peter's wife's mother, which means he had a mother-in-law, which you can't have unless you're married. Wait a minute, church tradition, he was the first pope. Well, should we be listening to the church tradition and the authority of church tradition, or should we listen to the authority of the word of God? What does the Bible teach? <laughs> the Bible teaches that Peter was a married man. God's word tells us that. And his mother-in-law was very ill, ridden with some type of a fever in her condition, and they informed Jesus, it says, they take Jesus there, they told him about her condition, which is what we should do when someone is in great need or ill or bedridden, is tell Jesus. He's the only one that has power to do anything. And to tell Jesus of their condition, they told him about Simon's mother-in-law who was laying sick with a fever, and it says, verse 31, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And there's Mark's word again. Immediately, the fever left her. It was a miraculous healing. And she served them. Here we see Jesus' authority over sickness, over human illness. He chooses to instantaneously bring a healing to this woman's condition. And it doesn't say over time. It says immediately, instantaneously. Jesus takes her by the hand and chooses to offer a gracious gift of healing, and immediately the fever left her. She was cured, and look what she did. Verse 31, she got up and she served, it says, everyone that day. What a beautiful response to see in this woman here. In gratitude, without being asked, Jesus didn't say, okay, now I cured you from a fever. No laying around and saying you're tired. It says that he cured her miraculously and she served them. The picture there is how a life should properly respond 
to being touched by the changing, transforming power of Jesus. In gratitude, she got up and she just started serving. It was just a natural response. She was so blessed by what the Lord had done in her life. In response, automatically, she wanted to serve the Lord. That was the fruit of her appreciation. It was the expression of her gratitude. And that should be all of ours as well. I mean, what really are we going to give back to the Lord? We give him our lives. Lord, I just I want to serve you. What you did for me, how you changed me, that should be the natural expression that we serve in response to what the Lord does for us, what he touches our life and ministers to us. Verse 32 tells us, Now at evening when the sun had gone and set, they then brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he healed many. Now, it's interesting. They bring all. He heals many. Is interesting. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So here's how the scene culminates here. As the word spreads about what Jesus can do, it says that verse 32 is evening came and the sun was setting. Once three stars were seen in the sky, that was the end of the Sabbath. Now they can move about freely again. Now you can carry burdens. Now you can do things. So word spreads. Imagine after the synagogue service there in Capernaum that day, <laughs> what Jesus did. And now it says they all began to bring all of those who were sick and demon-possessed. And you could just hear the conversations. Look, I, I know. But I'm telling you, I don't know how to fix your problem. But Jesus can help you. We just got to get you to Jesus. And all the people now are bringing their loved ones, their friends to Jesus. Again, what a picture, what we should be doing through prayer, through communication, through bringing people to the house of the Lord, bringing people with issues and problems. Say, look, I just got to get them to Jesus somehow. And what a beautiful scene to see them bringing people to Jesus and verse 33 said, that day the whole city was gathered at the door. What a scene, man. The whole city gathered at the door for what? To seek Jesus. They're waiting in line to seek Jesus. Again, can I say quickly, the only attraction in that location was the presence of the Lord. It wasn't the latest Christian movie, the greatest Christian concert. It was Christ. How beautiful is that? The whole city's there in a line for the presence of the Lord, longing for the presence of Jesus. And of course, verse 34 describes the power of Jesus healing and changing and helping and setting free so many lives, exercising his great authority. No doubt I think it's there, again, to encourage us to know our Lord has such great authority and we would be wise to believe him for that and to respond to that. And to say, Lord, work your authoritative power in my life and in the lives of people around me. 